Good afternoon or good evening to our listeners, wherever you may find yourself in the world. Uh, my name is Dr. Mujahid Dittani, and I'm very pleased to be joined yet again uh, by Dr. Mohamed Umerji, who is an accident emergency doctor in the United Kingdom. Mohamed, we last spoke two weeks ago, and our discussion was dedicated to the COVID-19 issue. And I think the both of us thought it would be immensely helpful to shed some light for people, for brothers and sisters and others who had questions about COVID-19 and who would be particularly fascinated by your experience as a physician. And so we intended after that session on following up our discussion on COVID-19. However, mm -hmm. as does happen, qadar Allah, a lot of interesting, perhaps even transformative things have happened immediately after our last discussion. Uh, so today's date is June the 7th. So for the last two weeks, just to provide some context to everybody, uh, George Floyd in the United States, who was an African-American, was savagely and brutally murdered by police forces in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And as does happen quite often in the United States uh, over the course of a few centuries, but particularly over the course of the last few years, there has been a lot of news coverage, and rightfully so, of African-Americans being brutalized uh, and murdered and assassinated by police forces uh, and other officials which has not led to any sort of change. And for the most part, there have been protests. Uh, and then after a week or two, those protests are, are forgotten. And a number of things are unique about this, which I think is going to form the basis of our discussion today. Uh, firstly, this falls very squarely in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. Uh, a lot of people have been isolated in their homes. A lot of people have had time to reflect. Maybe that's the reason why this feels like it could be transformative. It may be, um, it may not be Allahu Alam. Uh, as they say, yesterday is history, tomorrow's a mystery. But there's a mm -hmm. lot of momentum as we speak uh, in terms of protests happening worldwide, everywhere, uh, very diverse in, in terms of their composition. And so the both of us sat down and we thought it would be very relevant and interesting to discuss, again, from the standpoint of our respective professions, racism, uh, mm -hmm. in particular systemic racism, what that means both for your profession and mine, but to examine our societies. Uh, you find yourself, uh, Dr. Muhammad, in, in the United Kingdom, uh, which is my home away from home. Uh, but I find myself on the other side of the pond, as it were, uh, in Canada, not very far from the United States, which is the focal point of where all of this is happening. But yeah. of course, where you are, there are protests, there are massive protests in London, there have been massive protests in Canada, and really all across the world, in, in Europe, in, in Asia, and Africa, and the rest of it. So um, I thought it would be, as did you, it'd be interesting to unpack a lot of things today, and, and we have quite mm. the flight plan and quite the itinerary. Uh, but if it's all right, I'd like to start by, similar to what I did the last time, 
and, and this follows quite neatly. Last time in our discussion, I asked you to share with us some of your experiences as a doctor uh, at the outset. I want to do something similar here, uh, but Muhammad, Dr. Mohammed, obviously you have views as, as a person on racism, mm. as a Muslim on racism, and both of those things are going to influence uh, your discussion on uh, telling us a little bit on your views on racism as a medical doctor or a physician. And perhaps if you could speak a little bit more broadly about how the medical profession does and should view racism. And this is particularly important, as you know, there's been the movement White Coat for Black Lives, which has been the medical yes. profession coming out and, and, and speaking and showing solidarity um, uh, with, with George Floyd and, and the African-American community. But mm. could you, let's start there. Could you tell us about uh, the views of the medical profession, including your own views as being a medical doctor on racism? No, Jam. Jazakallah khairan for for the question. Uh, well, you know, Alhamdulillah, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, so it's, I mean, I guess the first caveat here is that you know, as 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 a profession, when we're speaking from a from the basis of being a professional um, and answering a question um, according to some of the definitions provided by that profession. It's unfortunate that sometimes the reality doesn't necessarily match the the theory, um, and and that happens with 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 everything that we're seeing. And I'm sure we're going to be discussing a lot of theories, um, and actually pointing out the fact that the realities don't actually match the theory of how things are supposed to be. Um, and 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 from the, from the medical point of view, because just as there's been a lot of con controversy concerning um, George Floyd. Um, and also the treatment of African Americans um, and racism generally in in, in the entire world. Um, there's been a massive issue, especially here in the UK, with um, the BAME community, which is the the Black and ethnic minority community. But from a doctor's standpoint, um, in terms of how the medical professional uh, defines um, race as a as a construct almost, and how we deal with it, um, as doctors, you know, we are um, we're constantly dealing with life and death, right? Um, and the, the value that we seek as doctors is the humanitarian value. Of course, as a Muslim, you know, we we, uh, we seek a greater value than this. Um, but, but from a doctor's standpoint, as a profession, we seek the humanitarian value. So based on that, we, 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 we endeavor to always treat people as equals. We always try to save people's lives, regardless of backgrounds, regardless of their decisions, regardless of whether we deem their decision or their, um, you know, yeah, their decision to be irrational or not is irrespective. You know, their their view is their view, and we're here to respect that view. Mm -hmm. um, and in every kind of step of care, we we aim to try and eliminate any form of bias. Okay, because naturally we we. We have our own upbringings. We we were born in various different environments, and subsequently, we we are subjected to our own biases, and we make judgments based on that. Um, so we, we try to see everyone everyone as equals. You know, whether that be patients, whether that be the workforce, whether that be you know, you know, nurses, doctors, or anyone around us, we try to deal with people on the basis of equality. Um, you know, not yeah, equality and 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 not differentiating between, you know, a person based on 
to be frank, factors that they have no control over, um, which I guess in some ways is is tandem with how people in general want the world to be. Um, and, and that's why people have have come out come out in the world um, protesting, I guess, in some ways, you know, protesting and requesting the world to see people as in the same way that doctors see people. Um, which is quite interesting. No, and and that's a very interesting perspective on how the medical profession ought to view uh, patients, ought to view people. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting. I, sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, I, I mean, I'm more interested in uh, uh, Dr. Attorney, kind of based on your experience as well. Um, you know how how you as a lawyer see see race um, and racism. Um, you know, is it similar to the medical profession? And uh, I mean, I remember watching, I mean, the best films, um, I tell you, are, are, are courtroom dramas um, for me. Um, yeah. Some of the most memorable of those are actually um, those films, like, I'm not sure if you've seen A Time to Kill. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, great movie, Matthew McConaughey, Samuel L. Jackson, um, dealing with, with the race phenomena. Part of um, every law school syllabus. Um, absolutely, no, absolutely. And, uh, <laughs> no, but you're I, right. I wouldn't be surprised. But 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 how do you deal with it? Um, how do you see? How you know? How do you view it? So, and that's a really interesting thought because I think a lot of people, uh, especially in in American cinema, uh, if if you go back to uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, the Harper Lee novel, which discusses. Uh, you know, uh, which is courtroom drama, uh, where mm. uh, a lawyer is is defending uh, somebody for a crime that they didn't commit in the backdrop of a system which is very much racially charged. And at the time, uh, the United States was had an official policy of segregation known as as Jim Crow, uh, and whether or not. There's been any departure from that we're, we're going to be discussing in, in a lot of depth, but you know, since then, you're right. I, I've I've seen a time to kill, and I'm sure there are hundreds of of, of films. And um, just actually reflecting on uh, when I, I I was on a speaking engagement with uh, Moazim Beg once, and mm. he had asked me a, a, a similar question. I think owning to my accent, he was reminded. A lot of American cinema in this context, but yeah. I, I think the legal profession's view naturally, uh, when one is a lawyer, very close to that concept is one's view of of justice. That that to be a lawyer uh, is people fall under one of two categories, more broadly speaking, at least in my experience. A lot of people go to law school uh, to either make a lot of money because rather than watching uh, A Time to Kill, they've been watching Suits, uh, where right. the focus is more on uh, the accumulation of, of wealth and living a certain lifestyle and driving certain cars and things of that nature. Um, mm. The other half of, of law students, I think, are very much committed to concepts like social justice, that they see themselves as interlocutors for those less fortunate. Some mm. of them come from communities that have been less fortunate uh, and therefore studying law and becoming a lawyer 
allows you almost in a very Archimedean sense to do good in your community, to do good in, in society more generally, to uh, alleviate some of the damage that has been done over the course of decades, if not centuries of, of policies, which, and again, we're going to be discussing this in a lot of detail, which have squarely aimed at communities of uh, uh, black and ethnic minorities. But um, for the most part, uh, one of the things that as, as you move into looking at laws and academic discipline and legal philosophy, mm. one of the things you realize is the disconnect between law and justice. Uh, mm. So as a lecturer, yeah. one of the questions I used to ask first-year law students was, what is law? It was the very first question in every introductory uh, legal course or, or legal class would be to ask the students, A, why are you studying law? And B, what is law? And you would have different variations on, on that question. But one of the more interesting ones that's always resonated with me is the idea that law is a, a series of, of rules, uh, edicts, pronouncements made by the wealthy in order to control the less affluent. Um, wow. And in that, when you unpack that, the less affluent are naturally people of, um, uh, of, of the underclass, um, economic, mm -hmm. racial, um, etc. And so as, as, a, as a profession, we still have a long way to go from that ideal, mm -hmm. which is very much about, and perhaps uh, the law or lawyers, I should say, distinguish themselves as a profession mm. from other professions because they are more explicitly in the popular conception, a group of people who are meant to execute those higher ideals of, of justice, yeah. irrespective of, as you put it when you were describing medicine, uh, irrespective of culture, values, religion, etc. I mean, that's very much what the legal profession is meant to be about. But when you dig a little bit deeper you realize mm. that there are some very fundamental problems uh, with what the law is and the right. fact that people view the law as remedial in nature. That is that the law is viewed as a solution to problems rather than mm. the cause of problems themselves. So we have to right. go back as a profession, in my view, to rather than edifying the law, uh, as a solution to problems, we have to look at how it's quite possibly the cause of problems. And that really harkens to the origins of the societies in which we practice. And so for myself, yeah. and I suspect for yourself, Mohammed, as well, Dr. Mohammed, um, you're in the United Kingdom, I'm in Canada, we both practice our professions uh, and, and ply our trade in the West. Um, yes. in, in, in a Western European or Eurocentric society, um, mm. which in a lot of ways has, cannot be disconnected from racism. Correct. Absolutely. Uh, which I, you know, and I'd like to, to, to pick your brain a little bit about this. I mean, and mm. I've been speaking a little bit from the context and, and the prism of, of my profession, which brings us, I think, inevitably to the fact that and I think that this is safe to say that both yourself and myself, it's very plain to us 
plying our trade uh, in in our in, in our homes, which is mm. for you in the UK and for me in Canada, uh, to to really reflect on the origins of racism. I mean, certainly mm. you see it often. I'm sure in your practice as as a medical doctor. Um, I specialize in human rights law, so for the most part, my profession, my professional life is focused almost exclusively on things such as racism, on uh, things such as discrimination uh, based on religious belief, uh, sexual harassment, which is a a form of of discrimination against people based on their gender. But for me, it's inescapable. And so I reflect on this quite a bit. Um, And I'm sure you do as well, but I was hoping we could discuss the origins of racism in in Europe, in North America. And I'd like your thoughts on this a little bit. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. Um, It's interesting. I think, you know, I think racism is is something, just like with everything, needs to be thought about very, very deeply, um, as you've you've alluded to it, because it's, it's, you know, it's actually, you know, it can be argued that it's quite a, it's quite complex, especially if we're trying to ask very fundamental questions about origins, because only until you answer those questions, you can actually devise um, a solution to those. I mean, from my own thinking, and of course, of course, this is this isn't gospel, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's naturally subject to critique. But I think, you know, you know, racism is 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 pre-European actually it's you know pre 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 the modern world almost it's it's a it's actually what I would describe as as being um quote-unquote quite primitive as an outlook right and 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 to explain that I mean you know it's I would probably say is is that it it arises from an innate need uh, of people to survive and subsequently um, people and nations or types of people arranging themselves in a certain way in order to maximize their, their their chances of survival right and that's often as a result of some form of commonality right so that could be um, language that could be uh, skin color that could be um, you know that could be um, something that's common between people right so so, so that's what my um, kind of view on it is so so it's so subsequently but 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 it becomes a problem when when it becomes um, embedded in a society and when it becomes justified according to ideas and constructs, and and that's unfortunately what happened, from my reading in Europe, right? Mm-hmm. Because when we understand European history, um, European history is is full of competition between various different European nations. It's full of um you know attempts of dominance so you know the various different monarchs you had whether it was in britain or france or 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 the or spain as an example um and when you look at the european history you can you, it's very easy to read and very easy to see that a lot of policy a lot of a lot of the relationships and policies that we've seen throughout europe and the west they've actually been on the basis of this contra- construct, right, of this, you know, of set of groups of people um, believing in their dominance over over other groups of people, um, based on certain characteristics they've had. So even when we look at and 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 that and that became, you know, that 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 actually superseded even 
broader, so quote unquote, broader and 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 greater values that Europeans held. Um, so, as an example, Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. So, if we read Christian hith- history, for instance, um, we know that you know during the Crusader period, and even even you know whether it's the First Crusade, Crusade, Second Crusade, Third Crusade, or or any of the Crusading periods, there was a constant need for Roman Catholicism, which was based in Rome, to assert its dominance over the Eastern Orthodox Church, mm-hmm. right? And historians have attested to the fact that there was no other reason other than essentially racism, right? Where Europeans felt that they were dominant and they had more of a right based on the fact that they were Europeans over Christianity versus, you know, the Greeks, as an example, right? And it's unfortunately this this view, um, you know, that's based on, you know, a, a view that certain groups of people are dominant over others based on certain qualities they have as as people, whether that be language, um, you know, color of skin or whatever, that even that has even led Europeans to define other Europeans according to these constructs. So, as an example, using the British context and being very very crude, of course, there is an un, there is an underlying racism towards people from Eastern Europe. Right. Right. There is. It's you know it's something it's like an untold truth right it's uh, it's just the reality of 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 the society right um, why that is it's not for any other reason other than the fact that you know people from Western Europe feel that they're actually a bit more civilized and better and you know etc 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 versus people from Eastern Europe and and it's an un, unfair thing to do but unfortunately you've got an entire society that's that's based around these these particular set of ideas, right? right? And and from this we can extrapolate and we can understand why a lot of the policies that Europeans have had in relation to others, which I'm sure we'll we will kind of expand on later, mm-hmm. you know, all of these can be explained from this from this European outlook on the world, right? right. Where inherently there seems to be some characteristics that makes western europeans dominant and better and more intelligent and and stronger and more powerful than other people and other races and and other cultures um and sorry it's interesting that you say that and i want to tease this out a little bit more um Mm. uh, in in terms of western europe and western europeans and and you touched upon when you were discussing competitions between monarchies um and, and you, you referenced, uh, to a certain extent, nationalism and, you know, the, these are sort of pre-nation states, but they become nation states uh, Indeed. In, in, in the end. And one of the things that's fascinating about that, and one of the things that isn't discussed uh, very often, is how much of this is mythologized. And, and, and take some, mm. some of these Western European nations right so let's let's take a look at france so yeah uh during uh during the formation of the french nation state uh mm-hmm. just before the french revolution the parts of france that we now understand as constituting france these these regions these provinces uh that that constitute france historically didn't belong to uh, France as understood uh, after the French Revolution. So, for example, uh, Brittany, Normandy, um, 
some of these areas were, were part of England, some of them were part of Germany. And what happens during the French Revolution is a narrative is constructed around mm. uh, the French language as a symbol of, of nationalism. What's interesting is that after the French Revolution, the number of people that spoke French, quote unquote, was about 10%, give or take. So mm. in the interest of mythologizing the nation state, uh, everybody rallied around the language, despite the fact that 10% or less of the people actually spoke that language. Uh, or oh, you take Germany as another example. Um, mm. it, it, it's, it's, in a sense, the same history. So Bavaria, Prussia, um, yes. Al Alsace-Lorraine, you know, which, which variously goes back and forth between uh, France and Germany, uh, Posen yeah. or Poznan, you know, some areas mm. that, uh, that would belong to Poland. Um, Germany does the same thing. It binds itself during the time of Bismarck in terms of these Teutonic myths about the existence of, of, of a German people. Uh, mm. And it creates a nation state around it. So Otto von Bismarck, the Iron Chancellor, as they called him, uh, yeah. binds together Prussia, Bavaria, uh, and, and decides to create an empire. And mm. lastly, with Italy, and, and I'm using these three countries because, you know, in a lot of ways, that this is what constitutes Western Europe, not, not in its mm. totality, but when we think Western Europe, uh, these are some of the countries we think of. Italy at the time that Giuseppe Garibaldi united Italy, uh, you mm. had Sicily, you had Florence, you had Venice, you had uh, these states, uh, not, in the, not in terms of nation states, but geographic subunits, which were historically not tied together. So Garibaldi, who grows up and is born in Nice, who decides to then unify Italy, Nice today is part of France. It's not part of Italy. So... Oftentimes, these nation states, in the interest of creating a sense of superiority vis-a-vis -vis the other, and I'm sure we're going to discuss who the other is, created myths rather than realities to solidify and to reify their own nation states, despite yep. the fact that there, were no, there was no basis in reality for this. So I always find it interesting uh, to discuss the European outlook as though these nation states were were historic were were natural were were necessary uh uh culminations of of, yeah. of a shared geography history culture when we examine the history none of those things are true at all um it's true yeah. very convenient for an ideology of a different sort and a politics of a different sort to take root um and i'm yeah. sure we're gonna discuss that but I wanted to throw that in there because you did touch upon, uh, you know, nationalism and monarchies and competition and as no. an explanation for racism and bigotry and xenophobia um, and this being ingrained in some respects in how Western Europe sees itself. Yeah, I mean, I think just to add, to be honest, Dr. Zatani, and it's it's interesting when, when, we, when you read uh, European history, especially kind of pre-modern Mm -hmm. uh european history and and how the various monarchs and and and, and the various you know quote unquote nations not in the modern sense of course dealt with each other mm -hmm. you realize that actually um understanding the basis and i call it a primitive basis because it is in reality quite you know unfortunately not 
you know, quite a primitive basis because, you know, in in the pre-modern time, um, a lot of these nations as we know it, like Britain, for example, and France and, 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 and some of the other nations that we've been discussing, mm-hmm. at some moments were forced to actually, you know, it's as if, you know, the church had to basically take take a whip out and basically whip a lot of these nations because, you know, based on this very superficial basis of of dominance, you had wars, you had undercutting, you had, you know, breaking of treaties for absolutely no reason amongst, um, you know, various nations, uh, various dif- different types of people, as an example. Mm-hmm. And then from that, you had, as an example, the, the treaty or the arrangement of Westphalia, for instance, which was a... Um, you know, which basically solidified the idea of 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 nation states. It's it's as if, in some respects, it was a necessary it was a necessary evil for Europe because without it, now it's now become you know the the optimum way to organize the world, as an example. But right. actually, when you read it from a historical point of view, mm-hmm. it's if this didn't happen, then you know. You, you wouldn't know what you wouldn't know what would have resulted in the world to be honest you know people would have just taken over over i mean countries or nations would have just taken over other nations for absolutely no reason whatsoever mm-hmm. um so the point here is that it's it's touted as you know the best way to look at the world but actually you know it it's it's it arose from a very uh, a very messy situation in europe i was going to say because i think the note that you just ended on uh, and, and, and something that I wanted for us to discuss, and mm. we've been discussing this for the most part, uh, in, in discussing the origins of racism, particularly in Europe, we've discussed a lot of, of what was going on in, in the middle ages. And I wanted for us perhaps to discuss, and I think it's, it's a very neat way of transitioning to this, that mm. at the end of the middle ages, um, we have two ideological linchpins uh, for, for which cause a lot of what we're dealing with now in, in mm. terms of racism. Uh, and, and, and the two are European liberalism and capitalism, both of which we probably could spend hours apiece discussing. But I, I was hoping, let's, let's discuss European liberalism. And a lot yeah. of people will be listening to this and be thinking liberalism when we use the word liberal you know naturally people think um open-minded uh progressive those sorts of things and, and it really isn't mm-hmm. that at all um liberalism is really a term of art from from the standpoint of philosophy and as europe enters you know the quote-unquote enlightenment we have mm-hmm you know, both European liberalism and capitalism become, and, and, and these two things are both, they're interconnected and they're also uh, the cornerstones of what we're now experiencing today, you know, in terms of racism and, and other things. And often people don't realize this because mm. the, the words and the terminology themselves belie uh, something a lot more nefarious and sinister in a lot mm. of respects. So I was hoping we could discuss starting with European liberalism. Um, uh, how, to your mind, 
um, uh, this seems to be, you know, liberal European liberalism to start there. A lot of people would view as the European basis for progress. Mm. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, no, it's, it's a very good question. Um, and I think the transition is definitely neat as you've described it, Dr. Atani. Um, so it's, it's very important. I think whenever we're looking at any philosophy, um, especially the philosophy, which, which essentially governs the world and governs the lives of, of most people, of a lot of people that live in the world today, we need to, we need to understand the basis of the philosophy, um, and especially the views of those people who have almost coined, um, you know, the philosophy and its principles, um, its do's and don'ts, its barriers, it's, it's all of those various different constructs. Um, so moving on, essentially transitioning from what we've discussed previously of how Europe looks at the world, mm-hmm. it's the, the philosophers of liberalism, which rose, who rose rather from, from the lands of Europe, saw the world from exactly the same point of view. Right. So they had um, they had, you know, exactly the same, exactly the same view. Right. So on the one hand, you know, all men are born equal, as an example. But on the other hand, um, you know, that wasn't necessarily the case in the views of those individuals that had coined the the uh, the ideology here would be liberal liberalism. So if we take examples and and. And so such as, for instance, uh, Immanuel Kant, right? right? So he was he was a German philosopher mm-hmm. um, and his main contribution was 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 Kantian ethics, right? right. Based on rationality. So, right. you know, morals and ethics can be derived from human beings who are in origin rational and right. make rational choices, right? Right. So in his view... And and in his view, in his in his essays, as an example, right. a rational choice from his worldview, mm-hmm. which is ultimately wow. a liberal worldview, is, and I quote: "Blacks cannot govern themselves; mm-hmm. thus, they thus serve only as slaves." Right. right. So, so from, you know, from a a European liberal rational perspective, in inverted commas, of course, mm-hmm. um, you know, they come to the conclusion. And he came to the conclusion, one of the fathers of modern liberalism, that, you know, black people um, should only be taken as slaves. He he also coined a hierarchy of rationality, believe it or not. Right. right? Where yeah. he put Europeans as 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 the top, um, you know, Asians after that, then African-Americans. Right. Right. And then Native Americans. Right. right? Um, and that's the hierarchy. And he deemed anyone other than. A European to be inept at, at, at ruling and arranging their own affairs. Right. right? Um, you know, he even said um, that uh, a white government was needed to steer uh, societies around the world and rule them, um, because without that, you know, you would get absolute chaos. For example, right. Right. Um, you know, and 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 there are so many different different examples, and and there are some really cruel and really really bad examples as well you know about how to beat black slaves and these all came from Immanuel Kant right mm-hmm. um and and one can argue that okay this is a philosopher based in a particular area sub, you know uh, you know he's just one 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 person as an example but then actually when you read further and when you read the works of John Locke 
for instance, and this is very well very well known. It's it's interesting that we're having this podcast today because in in Bristol, right, we had a protest in Bristol today for for the um, death of George Floyd um, and for the whole racism issue. And um, I forget the name of the individual, but uh, the 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 crowd in Bristol actually took down the um, the statue of someone who had invested in the transatlantic slave trade. Yes, um, I'm trying to recall uh, the name of uh, Edward Colston. That's the him. Of Edward Colston. Yes. yes, that's right. Yes, absolutely. That that's him. Right. So. Um, and but but many people don't know that John Locke actually invested in in the transatlantic slave trade, right. right? So this is the same Locke that most Europeans hold in high regard. But he was one of the principal investors in in the slave trade itself, right? right? And he actually questioned the legitimacy of any political system that did not allow the killing of black people with immunity, right? So you know you've got you've got a very it's. And, and the examples are many, Dr. Tatani, but, but the point I think is hopefully made whereby, you know, when we transition from this European worldview, uh, you know, the way the, the Middle Ages and how they've organized um, themselves and how they see, you know, everyone outside of Europe, you, you naturally had the development or intentionally had the development of a philosophy, mm-hmm. right? A philosophy of morals and a philosophy of politics that actually comes from that those experiences and that outlook and in 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 reality just supports it right, right. and and institutes it almost mm-hmm. um, and perhaps i guess a question for yourself uh, dr tani whether you know from from a liberal from from i guess from a legal law point of view do you see do you see that link or you know do, do you see some of those constructs manifest in 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 your experiences and what you what you've seen from kind of liberal law structures. Uh, well, and and that's an interesting question. I, I think the extent to which um, uh, European liberalism and and what that really means. Um, absolutely, I think any student of of legal philosophy, uh, it, sometimes y- y- you look at you know, whether it's Kant or whether it's Locke, you're aghast at some of the conclusions that stem from Kantian ethics. Uh, And and just to give you an example, uh, Immanuel Kant, in discussing uh, the death penalty, capital punishment, uh, in, Mm. in Kant's view, rather frightening. So one of the things that people in the context of capital punishment and you can't separate this out, especially in the United States, from questions of race and racism. Uh, as you're probably aware, and, and most people are aware, um, African Americans are disproportionately represented in the prison system. They're disproportionately put to death by the state, and some of which you can connect back to Kent. So naturally, if you were to speak to uh, particularly those who campaign against a death penalty in the United States, uh, around the consequences of possibly executing an innocent person. And Dr. Mohammed, you, you know, naturally, I mean, we would all be aghast at the execution of an innocent person. Uh, of course. The can- Immanuel Kant addressed this and, and said that this was a necessary price you had to pay 
for justice. He said, you shouldn't be bothered by the death of an innocent person at the hands of the state. They died for their country. Uh, that, that is the cost that you pay uh, in the interest of justice. And so for those of us, um, mm. I don't work in, in the area of criminal law, but for those people who look at criminal law, criminal legal philosophy, penology, uh, criminal justice, this stems from Kantianism in a lot of ways. Right. Uh, that um, you will have, uh, in the interest of, of order, this is necessary. And you can't separate this out from the question of race either, because as you said, uh, Kant's views on, on a racial hierarchy determined mm. that certain uh, races were incapable of uh, governing themselves or controlling their, their more base instincts. And, and therefore, uh, in the interest of, of having justice, these things mm. were necessary. Locke is, in some respects, uh, I think, a little bit more interesting than Kant. Uh, Kant mm. uh, had as a reputation as a philosopher of being very dour, of, of having pronouncements uh, in, in both his you know, seminal works, a critique of pure reason and a critique of practical reason. Um, mm. Almost these maxims, these statements, uh, that almost like edicts that you would follow, right? So uh, do what thou will become universal law was a very famous, uh, was probably Kant's most famous uh, pronouncement uh, to guide his adherence into what his uh, philosophy should look like. The fact that um, there were no means to ends. Um, Locke is a bit more interesting though. And the reason why I say that is um, apart from the things that you've said about Locke's own uh, investments in, in the transatlantic state, slave trade and, and legitimating it, one of the things that Locke discusses and what Locke is famous for is this idea of a state of nature and a social compact, as he called it, so yes. effectively a social contract. So John mm. Locke was of the view that everybody was is, is born naturally with a sense of right and wrong. Uh, mm. What Islamically we, we might call a fitrah, right? We, we have a natural predisposition uh, towards right and wrong. You don't need to mm. be taught that killing somebody is wrong. You don't need to go to law school to know that. You don't need to go to law school uh, to know that if you came across 20 people beating up someone in a wheelchair, that you know that this is inherently wrong. You don't need to study anything to know that. And so John Locke had a sense of this, partly because John Locke, when he studied at Oxford, um, borrowed a lot of his ideas on uh, an academic who had studied the Islamic world quite carefully. Um, mm. But what Locke really contributes is this idea that we need a nation state, or we, not a nation state, I'm sorry, we need a state because people can't enforce uh, their rights. Yes. So he lays this out. The problem is it sounds good in theory. Um, and, and he was a proponent of, of something of a minimalist state, that mm. the state should simply enforce rights and do nothing more than that. But the question is around, and, and a lot of this revolves around subjects, right? Mm. So who are the people entitled to these rights, right? So if you're reading it devoid of, if you're a European, uh, you know, especially uh, a white 
you know, in, in England, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant male, mm. you know, the height of, of the privilege hierarchy, then Locke's ideas are, are fantastic. They, they guarantee justice. They advocate for rights. But as we know, humanity for European liberalism, the subject mm. was primarily a white European Christian male. Absolutely. Anyone falling below that was not the subject of, of having rights or even being a full subject of the law. And so if you look at, for instance, Thomas Jefferson, and I use Thomas Jefferson um, as an example because Thomas Jefferson is viewed as coming from the best traditions of European enlightenment, you know, someone who is a fan of, of liberty. Uh, some even say that Thomas Jefferson's Bible which is, you know, um, a historical treasure in the United States, um, mm -hmm. in terms of the Christianity that he professed, that he believed uh, in a very different sort of Christianity, a, a monotheism. He rejected the Trinity. Um, and this was kind of a, a threshold into European liberalism, mm -hmm. uh, who some people say was, was a secret rejection of middle-aged Christian ethics and things of that nature. But to take yeah. Thomas Jefferson's views on things like the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade, uh, just to reinforce this concept that European liberalism issued any uh, concept of um, this being universal in, in its yeah. ethic, in its philosophy. Thomas Jefferson, when the Americans were debating keeping the slave trade uh, in, in, in their state, uh, at the time of the American Revolution, Thomas Jefferson said that the slave trade, uh, slavery is like holding a wolf by the ears. You don't like it, but you dare not let it go. And that yeah. really sums up uh, mm -hmm. probably the most progressive uh, view of European liberalism, that slavery was mm -hmm. necessary. Whatever your thoughts on uh, the humanity of, of black people, it was uh, necessary to the maintenance of the state. You dare not let it go, um, even if you did so with a heavy heart. But this is, this is a product of European liberal thinking, which at its best viewed people of other ethnicities as, as animals uh, who needed to be incorporated into a system as slaves and, and, and beaten and violated and the rest of it, or... Um, who viewed all of that with a heavy heart if they didn't view it enthusiastically. Yeah. Um, and from this is born, and, and I think this brings us to the second linchpin, the second uh, prong of the philosophical underpinnings of, of Western mm. Europe and North America, which is capitalism. Capitalism. Right. Yeah. And, and the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade in particular, connects you know, to that. And I was hoping to get your thoughts on this. 